1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. This week, as a ransomware virus invades computers around the world, are hackers benefiting from the Bitcoin
2: boom? We may be seeing here is actually the emergence of a parallel financial system. How ex-convicts are breaking into the American job market.
3: There's a big shift in attitudes for employers in recent years, but there's still a lot of work to be done.
1: And watch out Bollywood the cinema of southern India could soon come to rival its larger Mumbai-based cousin.
0: They really are growing. And, you know, you speak to Tollywood and Collywood producers and they say that what they offer is a different kind of cinema.
1: So, first, one feature of the massive cyber attack that affected over 150 countries last week was how those who deployed the so-called ransomware wanted to be paid. In bitcoins. The value of Bitcoin and other digital cryptocurrencies has surged past the $50 billion mark this week. Clearly, a lot of people are making a lot of money out of this, and not just criminals. But has it become a crypto bubble to be followed by an inevitable bust? Ludwig Ziegler, our technology editor, has been monitoring the markets and joins me now. Hello, Ludwig. Hi, Simon. Firstly, looking at this attack, would it have been possible without Bitcoins if cryptocurrencies didn't exist?
2: It probably would have been possible, but more difficult. This malware installs itself on a co- computer, it encrypts the files, and then asks for Bitcoin and then you buy Bitcoin, uh, and then it becomes untraceable. Once you send the Bitcoin over the network, it's it's very hard to track who gets those Bitcoins.
1: Presumably, though, this kind of exceptional event isn't enough to explain why the value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies has surged quite so much.
2: Not at this point. I mean, it seems, it seems that the, the hackers, they have three Bitcoin accounts, and so far, as last numbers I've seen, £30,000 or dollars have been sent to those accounts. And as you said, the total market capitalization of uh, Uh, All cryptocurrencies, and and, and Bitcoin is the biggest, is now 50 billion plus. So I don't think it had any effect at this point. I mean, there may be other ransomware attacks. And at the margin, it may play a role. But I don't think that's these are the main drivers for the increase in the market cap of cryptocurrencies.
1: So so what are? Is it just a speculative bubble?
2: Of course, it's a bubble to some extent. I mean, you have to see within the past two or three months, I think the market cap of all cryptocurrencies has doubled to more than 50 billion dollars. That is mostly Bitcoin, but also Ether, which is kind of the the number two now. There's Litecoin. There's 830 of these cryptocurrencies. And those together are now worth more than $50 billion. So what are the drivers? So a lot of people have made a lot of money with Bitcoin. I mean, you have to see, I mean, some of these guys, they bought Bitcoin or mined Bitcoin. It was worth pennies. And now it's, I think, $1,700. Same thing happened with Ether. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the market cap of ether is no I think it's five or six billion dollars and so that started a year ago so there's l- lots of money has been made by people who are interested in, in cryptocurrencies so that shows to other signals to other people hey here's money to be made and that's why there's inflows from the outside world from the kind of the, the official financial system into this cryptocurrency system and that drives the bubble just
1: a, a couple of weeks ago you were writing about Initial coin offerings or initial token offerings, they're part of the same phenomenon.
2: They're part of that phenomenon. Uh, so initial coin offering sounds like IPOs, initial public offerings. And it's a bit dissimilar, but also different. Similar in that they're trying to raise money like a startup, and but they don't go to venture capitalists to get their money. They go to Ethereum in that case. They create a smart contract, which is a contract that is coded and kind of does its thing automatically. And then you can send money or Ether to that smart contract. And that smart contract issues tokens. And these tokens are a bit like shares, uh, and that's where the difference is to IPOs, but they don't come with ownership rights. But you can sell them, and very often you can use them within the project, like Back to Earth, this this immersive, uh, interactive game. They become part of the game. You can earn them. You can spend them in the game. You look at some of these ICOs, and you think, I mean, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, that's like self selfie Bubble. And to some extent, that's true. I mean, some of these projects, it's it's just kind of you may may as well give your money away. But it's kind of a playground. And and ICOs or the way this money is raised that may in the long run be actually quite important.
1: I suppose part of the whole point of these cryptocurrencies is that they're hard to trace and hard to regulate. When they start becoming so big that they have an impact on the economy outside this world, what can regulators do?
2: I mean, you remember when the internet broke into the open, became mainstream, people were saying, you can do anything, governments are dead, this is a separate space, and we can form our own governments. It didn't happen like that, because at some point, even cyber utopians have to have to live somewhere. If these things become really important then uh, regulators will do something. If you see, like, Bitcoin now at 1700 uh, Ether at I don't know what, but I mean, this the, the, I mean, what we may be seeing here is actually uh, the emergence of a, a parallel financial system. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't exclude that. I mean, it may collapse, I, and it probably will collapse at, at some point. But don't underestimate what's happening there.
1: Ludovic technology editor, Thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. So, listeners, have you invested in the Bitcoin boom? Do you foresee a slump in cryptocurrency? Let us know by tweeting us at Economist Radio or sending an email to radio at economist.com. Next, Americans who've spent time behind bars, and there are some 7 million of them, have long faced barriers to gaining employment. But now, thanks to government initiatives and policy changes by several private firms, attitudes to ex-prisoners seem to be shifting. James Fransham, our correspondent, joins me now from New York to tell us more. Hello, James. Are we talking about just a handful of do-gooding employers trying to do their bit for society or are we talking about some more fundamental structural shift?
3: So there's been a lot of publicity around ban the box in, in recent years. So, for example, Coke Industries banned the box in 2015, Walmart banned the box in 2010. This box is where, on an application form, employers ask people to state explicitly whether they have a criminal record or not and employers decided to remove this box in order to give people an opportunity, kind of get their foot through the door, and that would then allow them to kind of demonstrate what kind of skills they had.
1: But are there not other ways employers could find out whether they have a criminal record? Nowadays, people check social media, their government records. Some of this would be a matter of public record, surely?
3: That's correct, yes. And many employers still do perform criminal records checks. But the idea is that personnel managers would automatically screen out individuals if they stated on an application form that they have a criminal record. Now, there's been an attitudinal change. Where the idea is that people are given an opportunity to demonstrate what skills they have, and then there's a kind of consideration at interview stage or at perhaps an offer stage where that is taken into account.
1: Is this change out of altruism that is trying to do good for ex prisoners who are having a hard time, or do some employers actually see advantages in employing former convicts?
3: It's partly a bit of both. One of the main drivers is there's a tightness in the labour market now, and there are a lot of individuals who do have criminal records. There are about 7 million Americans who have spent some time in prison and there are about 53 million Americans with some kind of criminal record. And obviously they may be quite minor for misdemeanor offences or they may be quite severe. So there's a tremendous pool of labour there that if they are discriminated against, that pushes up wages.
1: So does it turn out that really it is mainly prejudice or perhaps only prejudice that has been deterring firms from hiring ex-convicts?
3: Well, I don't think we can put it all down to prejudice as a whole. I mean, obviously, having a criminal record does act as some kind of signal. But I think what needs to be considered is the time that has elapsed since that criminal conviction, the severity of that criminal record, the skills that that individual might have. Time alone is perhaps the best signal that convicted criminals will stay out of trouble. So it's reckoned that approximately after about seven years of being crime-free, former prisoners are are no more likely to commit a crime than the general population. And that's something that really needs to be communicated to employers when they consider taking on people with criminal records and their attitudes towards risk.
1: Do the data suggest that these initiatives are having the desired effect? Are Ex-convicts finding it easier to find work?
3: There is some evidence that convicts are finding it easier. I spoke to the Centre for Employment Opportunities in New York City and they work with uh, recently released formerly incarcerated people um, to place them in work within kind of the six, ten weeks of, of being released from prison. And they reckon there's been a big shift in, in attitudes for employers in, in recent years. But there's still a lot of work to be done.
1: And are they also finding a decrease in recidivism? Are they helping stop people from reoffending?
3: Yeah, these programmes are extremely effective. A study of the CEO work programmes found that their intervention reduced recidivism by about 19 percentage points. And it's actually, it saves a lot of money too. So for every dollar that the programme spent, about $4 was saved in criminal justice costs.
1: James Fansham, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. And finally... Bollywood has become synonymous with Indian cinema as a whole, exuberant, melodic and melodramatic. But the Mumbai-based industry is only one part of the picture. The box office success of Bahubali 2, a film made not in Mumbai but in South India, has thrust the burgeoning industries of Tollywood and Collywood into the spotlight. Stanley Pinal, our South Asia correspondent, is on the line from Mumbai to tell us more. Stanley, hello. Hi. For those of us laboring in the darkness, help us out. What are Tollywood and Collywood?
0: Bollywood is uh, usually, for most people, synonymous with Indian cinema, and there's lots of singing, lots of dancing, uh, mobsters, and and so on. But actually, uh, a growing share of Indian cinema is uh, not in Hindi at all, it's in regional language like Telugu or Tamil, which are South Indian languages. Uh, And the two uh, big industries that are in the spotlight now are are Tollywood, which is in uh, Telangana, and Collywood in Tamil Nadu. Uh, And they're in the spotlight particularly because of this film, Bahubali 2, which uh, has proved to be an absolute box office smash, garnering some 10 billion rupees, that's uh, over 150 million dollars. Uh, in India, but overseas as well.
1: And its success is not just in South India. Then it's it's success in North India as well in the Hindi-speaking heartlands.
0: Yeah. So actually, it seems likely that it's going to be the biggest Hindi film ever. Uh, so the, the the Hindi dubbed version uh, is going to be uh, the the most popular film in the Hindi heartland uh, as well. This is this is completely unprecedented. Uh, but it goes it goes beyond India. I mean, this this film has spent four weeks in the U.S. top ten. Uh, and one of those weeks, it was in the, in the top three in the U.S. Uh, I mean, even Bollywood films don't do anywhere near that well outside their home country.
1: And in the U.S., is its main audience expatriate Indians or people of Indian origin, or is it across the board?
0: Well, that used to be the model, right? So Bollywood appealed to uh, to the diaspora. Uh, so so Bollywood films always did quite well in the UK, in the US, Canada, and so on. I mean, here that the numbers suggest that uh, it, it has to be uh, beyond just Indian origin audiences. You just can't get in the top ten, let alone the top three, just by being so specifically targeted. Um, I think one thing that has helped is distribution costs have come down a lot compared to the old days where if, if a film was going to get disseminated, that required a lot of physical reels uh, being shuffled around. Now you, you can just uh, send a, a file over to any cinema and, and they can pick it up. So that has meant a, a much greater diversity in the films uh, that are getting shown and that presumably benefits these kind of counterintuitive hits uh, such as a a, a Hollywood film uh doing so well in the U.S.
1: Indeed but that ease of distribution is part of the problem besetting the industry because it also makes piracy and distributing pirated copies much easier doesn't it?
0: Yeah so the Indian uh film industry and I think this is the case for a lot of emerging market industries such as Nollywood in in Nigeria as well uh, is that really kind of all of the profit is done in a very 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 short time so here people are amazed that even after 10 days uh, you still have audiences in in theaters uh I mean, really, you kind of spend, spend millions. This, this was an expensive film. This was $70 million to make the two uh, Bahubali films. So that's quite a big outlay. And the expectation is really that you have, you know, four or five days, maybe a week to make your money back in cinemas. And after that, you know, piracy will have taken over.
1: But is this a one-off phenomenon, a, a sort of freak event because of this enormous hit? Or might we really see Tollywood and Collywood supplanting Bollywood?
0: Well, so, so they really are growing. And, you know, you speak to Tollywood and Collywood producers and they say that what they offer is a different kind of cinema. It's less star-driven than than Bollywood. I mean, it seems like Bollywood has a kind of roster of five stars uh, that are that have to be in in any movie. Mostly
1: surnamed Khan. It, mo- th-
0: three of them surnamed Khan, and, and lots of lots of starlets. The films are cheaper. They're more plot driven. The other thing is that that Bollywood is being squeezed by foreign films. Uh, foreign films in India uh, used to be about five percent of of all revenues about a decade ago. It's now twenty percent. Uh, again, the the distribution there is, is helping Indian cinema when it comes to going overseas, but it's also providing some unwelcome competition uh, when it comes to foreign films making it in India as well.
1: Stanley Pinal, can't wait to see the film. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this week's Money Talks. Don't forget to get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or by emailing radio at In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams,
3: tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, oh, the joys of driving.